I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very lucky to welcome to the studio my next guest, Oshin Hanrahan, who's the co-founder and CEO of Handy. Oshin, thanks for coming in. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Carl. We got super lucky because you're normally based in New York, but you were just passing through Silicon Valley, so we were able to get you into the studio. Always better when we can do this live. That's right. I mean, I, I think it's, if you're based in San Francisco, it's easy to be very lucky all the time. You've got people coming <laughs> through, you've got all these tech people who are right here, and then you've got folks, folks like me from New York who are passing through regularly. So yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm going to point our listeners to your website, and I know there's a story behind there. We're going to have to save it for later because you've got the world's best domain, handy.com. That's it, handy.com. That's and it, yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. So I will circle back on, on how you got that. So, Oshin, give us the elevator pitch for Handy. So you think about every service you need inside your home, from home cleaners to handymen, plumbers, and it's a pretty painful buying experience. Right? So you're going to look for referrals from family members or friends. Or you're going to go and look for a whole pile of ratings online and get into this whole back and forth. So who can I trust? How can I trust them? Is there someone in my neighborhood who will be there when I need them to actually do some work at a time that I want, at a price that I feel good about? And we thought we could try fix that. We could try get to a place where you can press a button and instantly say, I need a cleaner tomorrow at 9 a.m. or a handyman or a plumber, and the rest would just magically happen. Mm-hmm. And Within about two to three months of starting, we realized that it's not just about serving customers. We've got this whole other side of the platform that's going through pretty much the same experience in reverse. These are wonderful cleaners or handymen or plumbers who are looking for work, and they're trying to solve the opposite side of the problem. So can they find somewhere to work at a time that works for them, at a price that works for them, in a location that works for them? And what we try and do is we fix that problem. So we built a lot of technology. And we support that with operations to build a brand so that you can get whatever you need done inside your home and you can make that happen with about 30 seconds. And then we try and make it incredibly easy to find work for all the amazing people that work on the platform. All right. Well, this is very timely. I have been procrastinating changing my my uh, air conditioner filter for like four years now. Uh, four I, years? Well, it might be two. might be two years. But, yeah, but it's really four. It's a long time. And I know I could even do it probably, but I keep thinking, how am I going to get somebody to come do that? How, how would I do it on Handy? Just walk me through the user experience. Well, are you going to use it on mobile or are you going to use it on web? You tell me. I don't know. It depends. Okay. So I you're would at probably work. go. Yeah, I'd probably so use web. I'd you're doing it web. at work, I'm aren't doing you? It, well, of you're, course. you're doing it on someone else's time. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know nothing about my <laughs> job, apparently. <laughs> Because one of the best things about being a university professor, there is no boss. It's all your time. But but anyway, let's imagine I'm sitting at my desk drinking a cup of coffee and I have a I'm looking at a web browser. So yeah. typically that's what happens. You're at work, you decide to get something done inside your home, you go to handy.com, you put in a zip code, so I, I don't know where exactly you live. You put in your zip, you pick a service, you pick a time and date. So you'd say nine, whatever the zip code mm-hmm. you live in is. And you say, I need AC repair or AC. Um, you said you need a filter replacement right. tomorrow. Call it 10 a.m. or mm-hmm. 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. We'll instantly come back with a price. And you check out within about 30 seconds. So you put in a credit card number. You check out. And typically what happens next is you will actually download the app. Ah, so you'll go from web to app. Yeah. And you'll do that to manage the booking. Ah. So a lot of the real-time 
of actually managing a transaction happens in the app. Mm -hmm. But 30 minutes before the booking, you get a little reminder. You'll be able to log on. You'll be able to see the person, you know, the same way you'd watch an Uber or Lyft driver arrive. You'll be able to watch them a little map. They'll show up. You'll be able to see their photo. You'll be like, yep, that's the person. You let them in. They do the work. After the job is done, you would rate them. If you want to give them a small tip, obviously entirely up to you. Mm -hmm. If you want to renegotiate or they say, hey, actually, the price of this is going to be a little different, you can increase the price. You can put in a tip or you can just add hours to change the price. Uh, and that's it. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So I, I, I just to play out this scenario a little bit, which I'm, I think I'm going to, right when we're done, I'm going to go do this because I'm finally going to get over this procrastination. But I don't but, believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you can <laughs> check up later. But uh, let, let's say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I know what size filter it is. So how, how would this actually work? Yeah. Normally... I suppose the I don't know. It's been four years since I did it last, but the service it's provider would probably in my mind it's going up to eight. You know that, right? <laughs> so how would it actually work if there's some contingency in the task, like some uncertainty? Yes. Yeah, so task? so yeah. typically a lot of the work we do doesn't have this. So okay. a lot of the work we do is cleaning. Okay. And there's yeah. very low contingency on external parts or whatever right. it might be. So about eighty percent of the work is cleaning. But if there, if there are parts needed, there's two ways to play it. Mm -hmm. One is to say the person's going to show up, they're going to assess it, they're going to leave and come back with the parts. They're going to go to Home Depot or wherever else, buy the item you need, come back, right. they'll charge it to you. The second is we'll open up chat functionality about 24 hours before the booking. So you can go back and forth okay. with the person. You can say, hey, actually, I think you're going to need a filter for this. Let me take a photo and I'm going to send you the photo. You shoot the photo over to them. They can say, cool. I'll go buy that at Home Depot. It'll cost you X or I'll yeah. buy it wherever else. I'll buy it and it'll cost you Y. Yeah. And roughly, give me a rough sense of how, how the pricing works. It's presumably depends on the service category. But let's say for an AC repair, how might it how might it work? Depends on the service category. For cleaning, it's typically in the 20 to $35 an hour range. For more complicated stuff, it goes up to $35, $40, $50 an hour. It's mm -hmm. typically the range of... Mm -hmm. uh, typically the range and it jobs range from two hours to eight, nine, 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And I'm not that bright, but I'm bright enough to guess how the business model works. Uh, we take I, it. We, we keep a little bit. Of that. Okay. I guess we, that's we, what we I keep guess. a little bit of that and we use it to, to cover our expenses. Okay. All right. And, and so you probably, this is not some great trade secret that the service providers know how much they get. So how much of the, of the fee does the service provider get? They get between 70 and 80%. Okay. All right. So it depends on whether the business is recurring, depends yeah. on the service category, the whole pile of things. But they get between seventy and eighty yeah. percent. And and let's which which the math says we get twenty to thirty then. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for for filling in uh, for my my intellectual gap. Um, so tell us a little bit about the about the service provider network. And, and actually, I suppose the the first question we probably. You say mostly you're doing cleaning. Is that right? The bulk. So let's talk about cleaners. What, who, who, who are these people? And, and, and I have a bunch of questions. What fraction of their business is done through you? Uh, how big a deal is this for them? And why, what's their incentive to, to participate? Yeah. So when we first started, we started, uh, we, started at, um, we started this business in Boston. Myself and my co-founder, Among, were at HBS at the time. And we put up an ad on Craigslist to try and find cleaners and handymen to apply to work on the platform. And we put up an ad in a couple of other places as well. And within about 24 hours, we had hundreds and hundreds of applications. Wow. And over the last four and a half years, 
we've had over 1.5 million people apply to join the platform. Mm-hmm. And that's when you remove out the duplicates. So it's about 1.7. You take out 10% yeah. duplicates. You're at about 1.5 million people in the U.S. who've applied to join Handy as cleaners and handymen and plumbers. And that's a lot of the population. Yeah, I was just doing the math. exactly yeah. the math I was just doing. It's yeah. half of 1%, roughly, of the U.S. population. And if you yeah. strip it down to the working population, yeah. it's yeah. about 150 to 175 million, depending on where you yeah, draw the so line in age. Yeah. It's about 1% of the yeah. population. Wow. If you then further slice it to recognize that we only cover about 35% of the U.S., you're suddenly into wow. like an even bigger percentage. Yeah. So you're somewhere around... Two to three, three and a half percent of people in the cities of working age who this applies to have applied to join Handy. And we tried to understand why. So we spent a lot of time really digging in to understand who these folks are, why they're choosing to apply, why they want to do this, what's in it for them, what makes sense, what, why. And when we got into it, 80% of the business is cleaning. About 95% of the people who work on Handy as cleaners are women. Mm-hmm. And 70% of them are the primary caregiver in the home that they're in. So that means they're either taking care of elderly parents or they're taking care of children. And typically, the folks that work in handy as cleaners earn a minimum of $15 an hour, an average of about $18 an hour. And what's most important is the flexibility of their schedule. So they're slotting this around their primary obligation, which is to take care of somebody else. So shift work or committed work typically doesn't work where you're the primary caregiver and you don't have a strong support network to fill in the gaps when someone gets sick or you need to pick somebody up early or it's a, you know, a president's day weekend or whatever else it may be. It doesn't, it doesn't kind of work very well unless you've got an incredibly flexible workplace. And most jobs at 15 to $18 an hour aren't very flexible. So what we do is we give people the ability not to give us a calendar or availability or a schedule, but instead just to take work whenever they want it. Mm-hmm. And that's typically why people are choosing to use the platform. So 80% of the people on Handy work 20 hours a week or less on the platform. Not because there's not more work there, but because that's the amount of time they want to yeah. work. 50% work 10 hours a week or less. And we see this pattern of people coming, working 10, 15, 20 hours a week for four, five, six weeks straight, mm-hmm. and then dipping off for mm-hmm. two to three weeks, and then coming back and doing the same thing again and again and again. And it's very interesting to watch this. And you know, you can see it in the data. You can see when you bring people in for focus groups. You see it in anecdotal stories. It's really about flexibility. Mm-hmm. And we've built a workplace that's just not typically very flexible at, yeah. that, at, that, uh, at that salary level or at that hourly rate. Whereas Handy changes that. And that's that's why this works for the people working on the platform. Yeah. Well, so the, the obvious question that I would have on the consumer side is, okay, I'm getting a cleaner who who cleans 10 hours a week, not really a pro at this. How do I know I'm going to get somebody who's actually good? And how do you manage that general problem? Yeah, yeah. so we put three people through a very rigorous onboarding process. Mm-hmm. And the average rating on Handy for a cleaner is about... 4.6, 4.7 out of 5. Um, and the process you go through when you're on board, is, it's pretty rigorous. So you firstly do an online screen where you answer a bunch of like bio questions. Then you do uh, an online assessment. Then we do a background check. And that's a pretty rigorous, you know, full state level background check and federal background check. Then we do a bank account verification. 
Uh, we do a phone verification. Uh, we do an ID ver where we ask you to take a selfie. You take a photo of your ID. Mm -hmm. We do the facial recognition on it. Uh, and then depending on all of that, we wait for the background check to clear. And we invite you to do the first couple of test jobs. We monitor those incredibly closely. Uh, and after that, you're onboarded. And there's this ongoing rating monitoring, which is happening all the time. So your customers are rating every single job that happens. Uh, your pros are actually also rating your customers. You're using that to build a profile of the pros' behavior so that you can give feedback. You can tell them, you know, after you know you rate well or you rate badly as a customer, we ask why, and we provide that information back to the pro to help them get better at what they're doing every single day. Mm -hmm. And and how do you manage the the workaround problem, which is I, I now have great cleaning cleaning person, um, but I can just pay her twenty instead of you you thirty. What, what how, how, but you wouldn't do that, right? I you, would never you, do that. Yeah, but I mean, I'm you definitely saying. don't want to avoid any tax either, right? You don't want to do any under the table stuff. Oh, so you just shame your customers into? We would never do that. But am I shaming you right now? <laughs> you are. So give me this. Give me the. Uh, give me the. Give me this story. How do you. How do you deal with this? this uh, it's obvious question. There's. Right? There's. There's two parts yeah. to this. The first one is there's obviously some form of disincentive. So, it's 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 about how do you make it very very obvious to the professional that it's more beneficial to keep yeah. this on the platform on the professional side. And then you do the same for the customer, but it's a more positive incentive. Mm. So for the customer, it's everything that you get through the platform. You have $5 million of insurance. You know that it's going to come right. off your Amex or your Visa card. You're going to get points. You don't need to worry about cash and a check. Mm. You know that you've got incredible flexibility to reschedule. You know you have a backup person right. who's going to come if your cleaner goes on vacation or is sick one week. And that's pretty, that's pretty yeah. powerful. So yeah. the customer value prop is very real. Mm. For the professional... There's a couple of different parts to it. So yes, there is the lack of ratings that you get. Um, yes, there is like a disincentive in terms of um, how you would work offline. Because if you think about it, we have you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs in any given 30 or 60 day period on handy. And you're looking at this on a four or five inch screen. We're not going to show you every job. Right. So we decide which jobs uh -huh. to show you based on a couple of things. One is what jobs you already have in the system. So if you have jobs that are around um, I don't know, Harrison Street, yeah. then we're gonna show you other jobs that are around Harrison Street today. And that actually increases your effective hourly rate because your travel time has come down. Mm -hmm. So there's this very powerful effect that comes together when you start to make it better for professionals to work on the platform. And of course, we also incentivize them. So you earn more on the platform the more jobs you do on the platform. So it's a little bit like um, a little bit like being an eBay power seller, where the more you sell, the lower the take rate becomes. Yeah. So we use that mechanism as well to make sure that both sides are incentivized to keep the work on the platform. Yeah. But of course, there's a certain amount of, sure. uh, of shrinkage that's just built in. It's, it's, it's in any model. Right. right. How, how frequently is... Are you able to to use the same provider or at least express a preference for the same provider? So about 60% of people really, really care about yeah. getting the same person back. And yeah. we facilitate that incredibly easily. Okay. So you can put, a, put uh, the, we've three different models, essentially, depending on customer preference. One is you don't really care. You just pick yeah. a time and whoever you want like will just show up. Whoever wants to will just show up based on the density optimization. Mm -hmm. The second model is you say, hey, I really want that one person. And what we do there is we allow you to go back and forth. If that one person's not available when you want, there's a little reschedule flow where you can suggest times, they suggest times, and 
they try you try and match. And the third model is you actually, after a while, you build up three or four people on the platform, and you have a small team of people, and one of that team is likely to be available yeah. when you want. Yeah. So it's like having a pool. Yeah. So you have a pool of you know three or four different cleaners or handymen that are available to you, and one of them will likely be available. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you don't end up in this back and forth. Oshin, take us back to the origin story. You described the genesis of the idea of, as the Craigslist, Craigslist posting. You and your co-founder were students at in business school, Harvard Business School. Were you looking for a new venture opportunity? So the genesis goes back like way, way, way back. All right, so take us back to the beginning. Way, way, way back. So my, my original background from Dublin, from Ireland, I studied economics, and I started working in real estate development mm. and ended up in property management. When we would build and sell apartments, I'd noticed this problem where people would come back very quickly and say, hey, I actually want to get this modification done or I need to get this thing fixed. Yeah. And suddenly you're providing handymen very quickly. And it's a pretty valuable service because even one, two, three years after you sell an apartment, people are still coming back to you mm-hmm. saying, hey, could you could you give me a handyman again yeah. because I still need to fix that thing or I need to make an adjustment or I want to make a modification. And I, I thought that was like, it was a problem. And I was like, That's, it's interesting that you keep going back again to try and find uh, find local work. Uh, or sorry, local workers. Um, after that, I did a couple of other things, and then I, I spent a little bit of time uh, in London. I worked with uh, with the venture firm, and when I was there, uh, one of the firms they invested in was Halo, which was an early Uber competitor. Mm. And I thought that experience way back in what would have been 2011, 2012, was pretty magical. You'd mm. take out your phone, you'd press a button, a car would show up, you'd get in, you know, you'd get out, you wouldn't have to pay the driver, and Back in 2011, that that seemed pretty special. Now it seems like the norm. It's like, well, if you're not doing that, what's going on? So I went to to Boston. I went to business school. And myself and I was living with two other guys. We were sharing an apartment. And um, we were kicking around different ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems we had was, okay, well, this, this apartment's incredibly messy, one. And we're not actually putting together the furniture. And the TV is still on the floor instead of on the wall. And it, it was a unique set of problems in a strange way because most people don't end up in these places for one year or two yeah. years. And you go to business school and you're there for only 18 months or whatever it is, and you don't actually want to go out and buy a bunch of tools because you're going to move somewhere else and you're likely, you know, essentially, a, you know, you're not going to likely bring them with you. Um, and we started to think about this problem of coordinating labor and coordinating work that would go into the home. And realize very quickly it's not about a messy apartment or uh, it's not about just this one use case. Actually, everyone has this problem of getting things done inside their home. So everyone's going to need professionals of some sort at some point. You know, maybe it's not cleaners, maybe it's not furniture assembly, but people need plumbers, people need electricians, people need HVAC and AC repair. People just need things done inside their home, mm-hmm. and no matter what the uh, what the need is. It's always a clunky experience. It's always a challenge and a problem. And we started to think about that, and then we explored what was going on on the other side of the um, other side of the equation, which was these wonderful plumbers and cleaners and handymen, and how how much of a challenge it was for them to find work appropriately. And it was just that friction that we decided, hey, there's actually something really special to be built here if we can solve this problem. And it's not a it's not a pure technology play. It's not a pure operations play. It's one of these wonderful hybrid problems that 
you got to get lots of things right. You got to get the operations right. You got to get the technology right. And then you got to try and build a brand that people gravitate to when they want to solve a problem. Yeah. All right. But let me just push you on this a little bit. I think there were probably, I probably had 20 Wharton MBA students with that idea in 2011. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, great business. It, it is not Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? I mean, in the sense that the idea itself is not technically difficult. The idea itself is in some ways sort of obvious. It's the Uber of taking care of my, my house. So why did you think you could, the intellectual property wasn't going to give you competitive advantage. Why did you think two guys in business school could then take this on and go profit from it? We were just naive. You were naive. <laughs> in retrospect, <laughs> we were crazy. Yeah. Look, it, it's a good question. And I guess you look back on the things that you've seen work and you look back on the expertise yeah. you've got. So I had experience in construction, development, and real estate. And I understood some of the nuance of organizing mm-hmm. that particular part of the problem. I didn't have experience in cleaning. I wasn't a particularly good cleaner. Um, but I understood that part of the problem. And I guess the further into it you, we, went, we went with the problem, we started to understand how it was, to your point, it wasn't a technical problem. Yes, right. there's deep technical components, and we have 50 engineers that work on them every day. Sure. Um, but it wasn't a purely technical problem, and it wasn't a purely operational problem, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a purely brand marketing problem. Mm-hmm. It was this hybrid problem. And if you've got these hybrid problems, it it starts to become a, okay, well, this is, this is an execution game. Yeah. This is yeah. about going out there. And figuring out what's the best route to market, what are the various steps along the way, how can we build the best team, how can we raise the best, or the you know the the right amount of capital, uh, and execute against the problem. And I think when you look at it from that mindset, it's not a hey, I have to be the most technical or I need the most operational person. You need someone who can figure out how to how to make it happen. Yeah. So let me just underscore that because I think it's a great answer. So there are some startups for whom. The source of competitive advantage is some technical intellectual property. You know, you could think, you know, Pandora and its music genome, or you say no. Okay. (laughs) I'm just looking for an example. I mean, okay, what's a good example of uh, something where it's really, really Well, SpaceX, right? SpaceX SpaceX is, knowing who your customers are isn't hard for SpaceX. The question is, can you actually put a rocket in in space, right? That's a technical technical, advantage Technical problem technical problem and but I, I mean I want to spin this very positively which is the execution problems are no easier and especially the big complicated hairballs like these two-sided markets so to, if you have the assets and capabilities to execute that can be your source of competitive advantage so that's the point I want to get across to our to our to our listeners but let me not let you off the hook on the second part of my question which is what what did you guys have to to convince, let's say, your first investors that you were the ones who could actually pull that off. Yeah. So given that it wasn't the essence, the idea itself wasn't where the value lay. Yeah. So I, I think you've got those three components that we talked about. So you've got the technical, you've got the operational, you've got some brand that you're trying to build, and then you got to layer on some strategy to demonstrate that you're going to actually make this thing work. Yeah. And the thing that tells people. The thing that tells the earliest people 
who you need to believe you that you've got the right strategy is straight up momentum. Mm. So are you gaining customers? Do you have some momentum and some ability to actually execute on this? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was, so we took, we took $50,000 from, um, I think it was, High, it was Highland Capital, somewhere at Highland Property. Ah, right. And I, there was somebody else as well. I'm blanking. No, uh, yeah, there might have been someone else. But yeah, there's $50,000 that we put to work over the summer. And at the end of that summer, I think we had quite a lot of, for 50K, we had a lot of momentum. Yeah, I, so Highland, I'm sure shout, out, shout out to Highland because they run a very great, they run a, an awesome summer program for students who are pursuing ventures. And I don't think they're necessarily doing it out of out of greed they're doing it for deal flow for reputation maybe for some other reasons but you guys were able to demonstrate that yep. you could get some things done and that's what led to the subsequent finance. yes at the end of that summer we had you know multiple offers for funding based on uh, based on that momentum mm -hmm. which I, I couldn't have been more than you know hundreds or thousands of bookings at the time um, but yeah the business had demonstrated that it was kind of gonna yeah. work yeah in the sense that who knew whether the unit economics would work, but we would gain traction mm -hmm. with uh, with another round of funding mm -hmm. or more traction. I want to ask you about the focus on cleaning. And you called the company handy. And the original impetus was all things house, household. Uh, how, how did the, how did, and I, I suspect that's still your aspiration, but but tell, tell a little bit about the focus on, the current focus on cleaning. So when we first started, there was no way we could afford the domain name Handy. Yeah. So we called it Handy Book. Yeah. And it was like straight one word, handybook.com. Yeah. And very quickly, people were making this jump and this leap that we were a book of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why. So we were like, no, 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 it's got to do with booking. Like, this yeah, is a handy yeah. way of making a booking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that didn't fly at all. And we... we I endured it until uh, until we raised enough capital to actually go out and buy the name we wanted, which was Handy. And this was supposed to be a representation of easy. So this is an easy way to do all Not the things. Not Handyman. Not, it, it's, it works that way, though. It works okay. in both ways. Yeah. So it works yeah. as a Handyman. It works as Handy as in easy. Yeah. It works as Handy as in, like, this is something that yeah. you can easily do um, to get done inside. Or sorry, an easy way to get something done inside your home. And I think when we started... We, we had this idea that we were going to solve all the things you needed done inside your home and we would you know, figure out which ones resonated and which what was the sequence in which to do them. And very quickly, the economics of a subscription business, which is cleaning, overtook everything. Mm. So subscription businesses, we know, are pretty powerful and yeah. kind of magical. So you, know, you bring in a customer one week. And suddenly they're there in week two and three and four and you bring in more customers and the business compounds very, very quickly. And what we discovered, and I think this goes back to the earlier conversation of like what was the right strategy, what we discovered was that the business just worked better if you acquired customers and had a regular relationship yeah. with them. So the importance of this regular relationship is super important. If you're going to have to pay the Google tax every time I want to acquire mm -hmm. you as a customer, then it's going to be really, really expensive to build, you know, to build a sustainable platform. Whereas if we bring you in with a service category that has a regular appearance in your life, like cleaning, so where you're in your home every week or two weeks or four weeks, you're opening up, up, opening up the app, you're looking to see where your cleaner is, you're tipping, you're rating, you're engaged in the product, 
then it's much easier for me to layer in other services that are ad hoc on top. So you need a painter, you're gonna need a painter like once a year. You're gonna yeah. need a plumber, hopefully yeah. no more than once a year. And those ad hoc services, we can layer on top of a relationship that we already have where the math and the unit economics and the customer satisfaction already works. Mm. And that's something that we kind of got our head around very, very quickly when we noticed, hey, we're going out with three services, but cleaning is the one that's suddenly yeah. 80% of the business. Wow, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought hadn't thought through, it makes total sense. So it's not that cleaning is the biggest pain point actually for the consumer, because I, you know once you establish a cleaning relationship, you might have it for years, but it's that it's recurring. And if you can get it, then you get the ancillary services. That's really, really interesting. Well, uh, yeah. Otherwise, the alternative is I bring you in as a painting customer, and yeah. in a year you've forgotten about me, right. but then you need more. Sorry, in six months you've forgotten, but then you need a handyman service. Yeah. I got to go right back out and build yeah. a relationship with you again. Yeah. Whereas I bring you in on cleaning, it's it's a different, yeah. it's a different business. So I, so I want to underscore the general principle here, which is it, it's, it's the point you raised, which is there's a need in the marketplace, there's a solution, but there's also a strategy. And this is business model and strategy layered on to your sensing of a need in the marketplace. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you, you think about, like, now that we're talking about this as the path to get here, it seems obvious. Yeah. But there's, you know, so many other paths. You could say, hey, let's go build a great painting, you know, painting convenient, a convenient right. painting platform where you can book painting online very quickly. Mm -hmm. Or let's do the same thing with uh, plumbing. Or let's, right. or right. you could say, hey, we're going to build all of these all at once, mm -hmm. but only in one city. Yeah. So you, there are like so many different yeah. strategies you yeah. can pick, but you've seen a lot of companies go and do versions right. of these, and it's just really hard because yeah. the math on acquiring versus LTV just doesn't work. Yeah. So so let's turn to the math on, I said we were going to get back to the UN economics. We could just skip that bit. Yeah. Well, I'm going to raise a, a very scary story with you uh, of a competitor who I had in this studio, Adora Chung, who's the founder of HomeJoy. And they crashed and burned in the most spe spectacular way. Uh, how did you avoid that fate? Look, I think that it's so easy to look back in hindsight yeah. and feel great about all these decisions you've made. Yeah. Some element of it is good fortune. Some element of it is strategy. So we look back on it and we think, okay, there was a period in time when it made sense to be bigger. Mm. So I, I think with these platform marketplaces, there's probably three, three, three laps around the track. Mm. At least there may be a fourth, but I haven't figured out what that is okay. yet. Okay, you're on lap three. I, I, I think we're on lap three. All yeah. right, you're going to need to give us a little more detail <laughs> on what the laps are. <laughs> I, I, I was hoping you'd go there. So <laughs> the first one is to figure out if anybody's interested and wants what you think they may want. Yeah. So do people come to your platform to sell, and do people come to your platform to buy, mm -hmm. and do they do it on some regular cadence? Mm -hmm. And that's the, does anyone care? Right. And if you can answer that question, you're kind of at that seed A. It's like, you know what? People care about what you're doing. Yep, yeah, this might have momentum. Yeah. This, this this might be a thing. Right. And once that happens, people come up all over the place. So once the people care question is answered, suddenly there's 15, 20, 30 companies that all kind of do what you do. Yeah, exactly. And the next lap is win the market. Mm -hmm. Be the biggest. 
because these things are largely winner takes most markets. Yeah, they're network, they're they're marketplaces, so they have strong network effects. Customers yeah. drive bookings, yeah. bookings drive pros, pros drive availability, which comes all the way back around, right. drives customers and right. bookings. So these things are network effect businesses. They typically have some version of that flywheel. Mm -hmm. Certainly our one does. Yeah. And as a result, whoever is the largest, and you gotta be very careful about how you define largest. So it's not about being, in some cases, in, in particularly in local marketplaces, it's not about being the biggest globally. Right. It's about being the biggest in a particular city in a particular vertical. Right. So you got to figure out what largest means. In some cases, it actually is the largest globally. So take Airbnb. It's actually important about be, to be yeah, the largest. Yeah, because globally. people are switching ge geographies with exactly. Airbnb. The, the, but you were in Boston, and so you had to be the biggest in Boston. Yeah. So we were in Boston and New York. Yeah. And at, at that point, we were we'd moved the business. We were based in New York, and we'd figured this out. So we had said, you know what, we need to be the biggest. Uh, we need to be the biggest player in cleaning in every city we're going to be in. And after we had done that, um, or well, I guess we should talk about that for a little bit. So that's about a million different things. That's a raw ground game of execution of mm -hmm. how do you get the most pros? Mm -hmm. How do you you know decide to be in the right number of cities? Don't be in too many. Don't be in too few. How do you figure out what the best channels are for customer acquisition? How do you get in front of those channel partners? How do you figure out you know how to do every single little piece to simply out execute? And there are versions of this still happening. Mm -hmm. So you take um, ride sharing and you watch this. It's going on live right now. Right. So you're watching Uber, Lyft. Right. In some cases, you've got Get and Via and other people around the edge of it in different like slices of it. Mm -hmm. But it's live and you can see the various competitive tactics at you know scale of billions of dollars uh, going on live right now. And once you've figured that part out, once that, that part is over and it can take you know a really long time, if billions of dollars of capital, it can take a very short time. Not too much capital goes in. And for us, it probably took two and a half-ish years of intense competition. And you know, we ended up buying some companies. We ended up you know, competing aggressively. You mentioned one that we competed with here. Um, and then at some point, it, it kind of levels off. Mm -hmm. That's lap two still. And that's lap two. All right. In, a, in, in our view of the world. And lap three of these marketplaces is to figure out how to make it work. Mm. So figure out how to go from... Yes, we've won this marketplace. We're going to be the largest in this category for some period of time. Now let's talk about how we build a long-term sustainable business. You have customers. You have pros. You have a team that's super excited. Now let's talk about how you build a long-term sustainable business. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're about. And we've been about that for about... We've been working on that for like a year and a half. Yeah. Well, let me take you back to, to lap two and the transition from lap two to lap three if I follow the Homejoy story correctly, their their acquisition costs dramatically exceed their lifetime value. Um, so they had a they had a money losing business that, that they, sounds bad, doesn't it? Right. And then if you scale that, of course, you lose even more money. Right. <laughs> but but there could be an argument in lap two that I mean it's the Amazon story, right? Which is, hey, I got to lose money for a very long time until I'm in the only place on earth that you can buy anything, and then I can raise prices by two percent. And own the world, right? So, so how do you think about getting the unit economics right versus winning lap two? So, I think there's a there's a few different parts, right? There's a big difference between losing money on every booking mm -hmm. and losing money on your 
acquisition cost versus your lifetime value. So one is really bad. Yeah. And the second one's kind of bad. Okay. So if you're losing money on every single transaction, irrespective of what it costs you to acquire the customer, then it's just like really, really bad. At that point, you're like gross margin upside right, down, right, your right, contribution right, margin right, upside right, down. Right, right. Like it doesn't matter what it's cost right, you to acquire right, the customers. Right. It's just like, you, you know, you're taking dollar bills and you're giving them away for 50 right, cents. Right. Um, and so let me, let's go, I mean, just put a, as the professor, I'm going to underscore this a little bit. So your argument is the notion of lifetime value is you're adding up the gross margin contribution from a series of transactions. What you're saying is if you're adding up a bunch of negative numbers, that never looks good. Okay. It's, so it's really, 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 really hard to yeah. make that look good. <laughs> okay. Got it. You, got you it, need got to it. figure out how to do some really creative math on like, I don't right. know. I don't know. I don't know how exactly. Right. You do that. So you, so, so you could prove the gross margin, uh, without necessarily having to, well, let me let you say it. Uh, what, 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 what? When do you need to prove that lifetime value exceeds acquisition cost? So I think coming. I think the thing that makes stage two or lap mm -hmm. two end is somebody says, "Hang on, only one of these companies or some subset right. of this, these companies are gross margin positive." Yeah. And there's a difference between, you know, being just gross margin negative and gross margin like neutral right. or positive. Right. And I think somewhere around lap two, we flipped it around to be like, okay, our CAC to LTV doesn't quite make sense, mm -hmm. but gross margin, this thing, this thing looks pretty mm -hmm. decent. Mm -hmm. And then you get into this second part of, okay, let's talk about how you have some margin expansion and some operation efficiency and all the wonderful things that um, happen in lap three where you really start to figure out the, uh, figure out the business. Uh, O'Sheen, so talk a little bit about the fundraising you started with, you, you've been through, let me see if I do the math, right. Uh, several orders of magnitude, different amounts of financing. So you, the first one was 50,000. And then if I read Crunchbase correctly, you raised more than a hundred million dollars most recently. Yeah. So those, what's what's different? What's what's different about? Let's start. Let's take the late stage financing. So this is this is people like Fidelity and TPG who are investing in the in the B and, and C round. What what are they looking for? Yeah. So I actually think it it goes back a lot to the the, the kind of different phases, right? So at that earliest stage, the C and the A, they're looking for does this thing do people Black care? One. Do yeah. people care? Yeah. Like, do you have momentum? Do people care? Yeah. And then the second phase, like the B round for us, was are you going to win? Mm -hmm. Are you going to be the biggest player in this part of the market? Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a you know that was a that was a conversation that was ongoing, and it was a capital game, it was an execution game, it was a momentum play. And then the last phase was okay, let's see how you're going to build a business, and that's everything from you know making sure that your customer sat is in order, making sure that you're recruiting great operational people, and. You know, it's really important at that phase to talk about, you know, how you're driving, you know, take any, take, I don't know, take any part of the business, take customer experience, the customer service centers. It's really important to be able to say, okay, well, our customer response times used to be, you know, 85 minutes and now they're, you know, they were 70, then they're 50, now they're 50, now they're 14 minutes. So, you know, you submit to Handy, you submit a ticket and the average response is 14 and a half minutes. So you're getting into deep operational metrics in every part of the business and they're, you know, the people at that stage are like, okay, like you've built something that's going to make sense. It's going to make sense for the long term. 
and they're looking at your lifetime value to acquisition costs. They're looking at your operating margins. They're looking at the team that you've built. They're, they want to know that you're surrounding yourself with talent that's going to take the business, you know, two, three, four, five, ten x larger than it is today, and that you've got the capacity to recruit and manage and motivate that team while you change the business. Mm-hmm. You know, I I teach I teach entrepreneurship, and I every year I have a bunch of students doing these so called two sided markets platforms that connect providers and and consumers. You described used two metaphors. You talked about the ground game, and you talked about the flywheel in two sided two-sided markets. What advice can you give <laughs> aspiring entrepreneurs who are building two-sided markets about how you keep that thing in equilibrium, how you keep supply and demand matched and grow at the same time? Yeah. So I, I think the first, the first piece of advice would be to make the field an appropriate size. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure out exactly where the corners are mm-hmm. of what you're trying to focus on. Mm-hmm. And in your case, that could literally be geography. It's absolutely yeah. geography. Yeah. It's yeah. geography and then it's services. Mm-hmm. So you got to pick an area and then yeah. you got to pick a, a, a category. Mm-hmm. And the smaller you can make the field, and it, it you can't make it too small because if you make it too small, no one cares. Right. But the smallest you can reasonably make the field the more likely you'll actually be able to generate momentum and liquidity in that area. And I think there's so much temptation and you see it like I, I, you see it last now, but certainly over the last three, three, four years, you saw huge you know, growth in terms of cities and people expanded all over the place. The more you can resist that temptation to be in every, be everywhere at once or be in every service at once or expand past where you're supposed to be, the more likely it is you'll generate momentum. And there's other layers you can look at it. You can look at it in a B2B version or a B2C. You can look at it in terms of partnerships. Like All of those things add layers and layers of complexity that make it less likely that you'll generate momentum and generate meaningful velocity in the, in the particular area you're in. So that's how to get the thing moving. In terms of keeping it in equilibrium, you got to figure out where you're willing to put money. So your marketplace in the beginning is just not going to be in equilibrium. It's just, it, sorry. It's very unlikely it's going right. to be in equilibrium. And one side will outdemand the other mm-hmm. or outsupply the other. And if you're subsidizing both sides of the marketplace at the same time, it's going to be challenging at the, at that earliest stage. It, it it indicates some form of problem. Yeah, if you're only subsidizing one and only to like bring it back to equilibrium, it's probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it's to figure out which side of the marketplace is going to need support, right? And be very careful about how you apply that support. You don't want the support to become a drug that just sits there forever. That you're just constantly mm-hmm. increasing and increasing and increasing. And there were markets where we had that problem. Like there were markets where we just misunderstood the structural dynamics in the market and ended up, you know, providing ongoing support to one side. And that was, that was bad. Like, I mean, when it came down to yeah. it, we just had to look at it and say, okay, well, actually, this is a problem. We need to solve it in another way. The way we're currently solving it is ridiculous. We got we to figure out how to solve it in a different way. So, uh, and just, just inform us a little bit uh, typically the way you described it it sounds like you had plenty of supply provider supply and so 
that would lead me to conclude that you had to support the demand side. Was that not the case? No. no. So okay. it's very, very, very region specific. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So the thing about um, the thing about delivering local services is uh, in person local services. The nuances of local transport matter a lot. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So you take somewhere like New York, you've got a lot of folks who can afford to work at 15 to $18 an hour, who can afford to live within, call it 30 to 40 minutes of Manhattan because of a wonderful public transport system. Yeah. You take somewhere like San Francisco, that is unfortunately not the case. Yeah. So getting in and out of this particular area, getting you know, in and out of the peninsula, peninsula, it's a problem. Yeah. And it's an expensive problem. Yeah. And as a result, supply in San Francisco and on the peninsula is a real challenge. And that creates this problem of how do you solve that on a local level? So, yeah, in Boston, loads of supply. In New York, loads of supply. San Francisco, not so much. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, all right. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the news this week, which is um, uh, the, the blow up at Uber. And, <coughs> and for those listeners who don't know what I'm referring to, Uber had an employee who who uh, wrote a, a very disturbing essay about her experience at, with the culture at Uber. And the question I want to ask is, what do you do to create culture? I mean, you're growing so fast. You're growing very fast. And I, I, look, at, I look at Uber and think, there before the there but for the grace of God go I, right? I mean, it's very hard, I think, uh, to, to build the right kind of culture when you're growing fast. So maybe you could comment on it and on the situation and what you guys have done or what, what you're doing to grow culture along with your business. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not going to comment on the specifics. Yeah, all right. I, I um, mean, I'm, I'm not, yeah. I, by the way, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, obviously, you don't want to have to be dealing with those problems when uh, you're growing your company. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, Culture is one of the hardest things that any founder deals with. So I think there is this ongoing tension that you've got between what you want the organization to feel like mm -hmm. and how it actually feels. And you've got this thing that you really, really want to bring into the world. You've got this problem that you identify and you really, really, really want to bring people together to solve it. And you want them, you want each person around the table to feel a version of what you feel. The mm -hmm. same level of urgency, the same level of interest, engagement, and excitement about solving what you think is absolutely enormous problem that could help tens of millions of people. And every founder is by default frustrated and impatient and wants everything now. Um, and there's just this journey that I think people go on, or at least we've gone on, which is to figure out what's the best way to communicate that. And we definitely haven't figured it out. Mm -hmm. But we've started to think through various levers. And one of them has been to articulate very clearly what are the important things to us. And to never stop repeating them. And you cannot over-communicate those things enough. So we... Um, have come up with what we think are the important values at Handy. We put them on the wall. We create a document that really articulates each of them. We don't just say, hey, here's like some words. Go figure out what they mean to you. We articulate exactly what each value means. 
we reward on those values. We do recognition on those values. We talk at performance reviews about those values. And I think it just doesn't get it doesn't get easier as you scale. It actually just continues to get harder and harder and you need ever more sophisticated tools. You need ever more of the senior people's, the senior team's time to think about how they can each become culture champions in their own area. But it's just hard. It's just one of those things that doesn't have, there is no silver bullet. Mm-hmm. And the resources you have to uh, to try and fix it or to try and address it, to try and create the best culture are time and money. And money is actually not one of the ones that fixes this. It's right. more time. Yeah, so it's, your time. It's, it's my time. It's my co-founder's yeah. time. It's senior leader's time. It's time spent where... In the short term, sometimes you feel frustrated where you're like, hey, if only we could work a little bit more on this particular problem today, but instead we need to actually work on culture because over a longer horizon, we'll be much better off if we actually spend time working on it. And it's, yeah, it's just a challenge. You know, we just have about a minute, but maybe you could give us some examples of what you aspire to in terms of culture uh, for Andy. I, I think the best way to think about it is to have a team that feels the same way about solving the problem mm. that the original founders do. If you can create a team where people are as excited, engaged, and enthusiastic about solving the problem as you were when you first started, then I think you're going the right direction. And inspiring people with that same level of engagement means that you know they're more likely to give each other a free pass. They're more likely to support each other. They're more likely to focus less on the internal dynamics and more on the direction they want the group yeah. to go. The more I'm, outward looking you can make it, the better. I mean, in fact, there's a, one of the nicest definitions of culture that I've heard is culture is the set of beliefs that guide action when there isn't structure, when there isn't process. And so when you're not there, you know, what are the beliefs that, that guide action? Um, all right, well, what's next for Handy? You got 30 seconds. Oh my goodness. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're on a great path. We've been very fortunate. We've grown this thing out to be the leader in this category. And we're trying to figure out how do we get towards that vision of every service to every home while also making the business work every single day, keeping our customers happy and helping tens of thousands of professionals work and earn money every day. All right. Well, it's an inspiring story. Uh, you've you've been very thoughtful about describing what you're doing too in terms of strategy and that I love. It's very useful in a guest. Uh, so th- so thanks so much for making the time and for coming in. Happy to do it. It's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. All right. You can follow Handy online at that great domain, handy.com. That's it, handy.com. And also on Twitter, at Handy. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.